Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello, passionate listeners. Welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. I'm so excited about my guest today. I can't wait to dive into this topic. My guest today is Paul H. Smith. And if you don't know who he is, Paul H. Smith is the longest serving controlled remote viewing CRV teacher active today. Paul served for seven years in the government's Stargate remote viewing program at Fort Meade. Paul was one of the only five Stargate personnel to be personally trained as remote viewers by the legendary founders of remote viewing, Ingo Swan and Dr. Harold Puthoff. Paul was the primary author of the government's RV program, CRV training manual, and served as theory instructor for new CRV trainee personnel. Paul is credited with over a thousand training and operational remote viewing sessions during his time with Stargate. Paul enlisted in the Army in 1976. His military assign assignments included Arabic linguist, electronic warfare operator, strategic, strategic intelligence officer for a special operations unit, Mid-East desk officer, tactical intelligence officer with the 101st Airborne Division during Desert Storm Shield, and chief of the intelligence and security division for the military district of Washington. Paul has a BA from Brigham Young University in Mideast Affairs, Art and English, an MS from the National Intelligence University and a PhD in Philosophy from the University of Texas, specializing in consciousness, the philosophy of science and philosophy of the mind. Wow. Paul is the author of several books, including The Essential Guide to Remote Viewing and Reading the Enemy's Mind Inside Stargate, America's Psychic Espionage Program. Besides serving as president of Remote Viewing Instructional Services, Inc., a company offering remote viewing training courses to individuals and small groups, Paul also works as a remote viewer and RV consultant, is a founding director and past president of the nonprofit International Remote Viewing Association, a life member of the American Society of Dowsers and a professional member of both the Parapsychological Association and the Society for Sci Scientific Exploration. This is his story and this is his passion. Paul, welcome to Passion Harvest. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you. I am thrilled to be here. And and you make me sound way better than I had expected oh, to. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm just fascinated by this topic. And for those that don't know, would you mind just explaining what is remote viewing? Excuse me. Remote viewing is a skill that's based on an underlying ability everybody has. Um, you know, in the vernacular, we talk about being psychic. Well, everybody is psychic to some degree or other. And remote viewing is a skill that allows you to develop that capability into a disciplined process for acquiring information and experiences. So it's something any, uh, some people better at it than others? Yeah, it's like any other complex human skill. Uh, anybody can learn it, but some people learn it better than others do. So you'll find some who just kind of have some modest success at remote viewing. Then you'll have others that are just 
amazing. They'll do some incredible things, uh, have some incredible successes. And it all depends. Well, I won't say it all depends, but a lot of it just depends on how diligent you are in trying to master it. Like anything, it takes practice, I guess. Mm -hmm. Some people are naturally talented. So where did remote viewing come from? It actually came out of um, some experiments that were being done in New York City before the government even got involved. There was, the, there was this man named Ingo Swan who was a uh, he was, uh, to make a living, he actually worked for the UN uh, and then uh, was trying to, set, to establish himself as an artist in New York City. But he also had this lifelong, he's kind of a lifelong experiencer in terms of, uh, of parapsychological things, out-of-body experiences, clairvoyance. Uh, and he got involved in doing some research with the uh, City College of New York, now the uh, University of New York, I think is what it's called. And... Uh, and with the American Society of Psychical Research, he was working with kind of two groups. And in the process, he said, you guys, you know what? The experiments you're doing for out of body just really don't make any sense. Let me suggest something. And he came up with this, originally it was an experimental protocol called that he dubbed remote viewing. And then it became developed into an actual skill set that he worked, uh, once the government became involved, he worked with Hal Putoff to develop and others. I don't want to shortchange the other folks who are involved. And it was, the, the, the army program was called Stargate, is that correct? Yes, well, unfortunately it's kind of complicated. Well, it sounds, <laughs> Stargate is a wonderful name. It sounds like Star Wars, it, it sounds very exciting. It is. <laughs> um, so it started off at a think tank in California named, uh, well, what used to belong to Stanford University at the time it was called Stanford Research Institute. And then uh, its name was changed to SRI International, and it became it was it became its own uh, entity, and that's where the research began. And it began because the CIA had uh, been following what the Russians, the Soviets, were up to in terms of so-called paranormal uh, uh, research, and the Russians were actually spending hundreds of millions of dollars, not rubles, which were much smaller wow. currency, but hundreds of millions of dollars on what the CIA considered paranormal research. And the CIA, which didn't actually believe in this stuff as an organization, didn't know why they were doing it. And they knew that the Russians didn't throw a lot of money into things unless they really felt like they were going to get some kind of benefit out of it. And so one of the missions of the CIA is to make sure that nobody else is going to sneak up on us with some kind of new technology. So they were obligated to research it. So they contracted with Hal Putoff at SRI and Hal, uh, Russell Targ was another guy who came, became involved in it. And Ingo Swan brought the remote viewing, the proto early remote viewing stuff to it. And then they proceeded to follow that. The CIA got out, the Air Force got into it, then the Army got into it, and then the Defense Intelligence Agency got into it. And it was the Defense Intelligence Agency that ultimately named the program Stargate. It had a bunch of names before that. But Stargate became its final name. And so it, the whole program is now known as that. It's a great name. It's I'd a just clarify, name. it wasn't the army that came up with it. The, the DIA was the, the, the one that originated that name. So. so you joined the army and at some point you were invited into the Stargate program. Yes. Yeah. In fact, I enlisted to be an Arabic linguist. Um, I had wanted to, I wanted to get a degree in Middle Eastern studies. I had studied a lot of Hebrew I wanted to learn Arabic, but I was out of money. And my then wife said, well, the army will pay you to learn Arabic. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's, it's so amazing so, how life 
takes us on these journeys and it was not at all what you were expecting. Exactly. And I did learn Arabic, but then I realized that Arabic at that time was not a growth industry because we mm -hmm. didn't have any wars going on in the Middle East. And You I were ahead of your time, I'm sorry. I guess I was. Yeah. Well, they had other Arabic linguists, but we were there just in case, yeah. right? Just in case something happened. In the meantime, what do we do with these guys? Oh, go to the motor pool, wash Jeeps, do you know, change the oil in, in trucks, stuff like that. Okay, I signed on to do something different than this. So I went to officer candidate school, became an officer, did three years with the special forces in Germany, came back, ended up at Fort Meade in a Mideast analyst job. And one day my next door neighbor talks, knocks on my door and says, we've been watching you. And I'm going, oh, <laughs> you've been watching me what? Watch me do what? They said, we've been watching you. We think you might be good at what we do. I said, what do you do? And they said, we can't tell you. What? <laughs> so, but here, I'll tell you what, take these tests. If you score what we think you will, we will read you on we'll, and we'll clear you for access to the program. And then you can tell us whether you're interested in volunteering or not. And so I did all of that and I scored where they wanted me to and they read me. They took me to their, their buildings where they worked out of, sat me down, said, okay. After I signed all these non-disclosure agreements, right? Sure. They said, you, um, what we do, our mission here is to collect intelligence against foreign threats using a parapsychological discipline known as remote viewing. We want to know if you're willing to volunteer to become a psychic spy. My gosh, and what were you thinking? I was thinking, where do I sign? <laughs> yes. It's better than washing Jeeps, right? Well, it was better washing Jeeps. It's even better than going through internal reports about, you know, Arabic tank maneuvers in the desert and stuff like, or I'm sorry, not Arabic, Arab tank maneuvers in the desert. Um, yes, it was. Uh, well, I have to give you a little more background. Sure, so, I'd love that. As a kid, I was actually fascinated by science fiction. I still enjoy science fiction, but back then I was fascinated by science fiction. And I particularly liked science fiction that had something to do with ESP, with extrasensory perception. And I read a lot of these books, Andre Norton, uh, Zena Henderson, a bunch of other folks that wrote that specifically focused on, on these kinds of like telepathy and all that. And then in junior high, I got involved in the science fair project which involved uh, the Zener cards, you know, those little cards with the wavy lines of the stars and stuff. And you try and guess which stars cards mm -hmm. gonna come up. Total failure, total failure. Oh. I was psychic as a brick, as was everyone else. Now I found, I, I found out later that it just wasn't done right, but, but still total failure. So by then I decided there wasn't anything to ESP even though it was a really cool thing to think about. And here they were telling me that the US government actually had a line item in the budget for an ESP program. And I thought, there really is something to this. There's no way I'm not going to do this. And wow. so at that point, in fact, I surprised them. I think they said, well, you can go home for, come back tomorrow and tell us if you want to do it. You go home and you can tell your wife these things. Um, there was a specific set of things we could say that didn't violate the classification of it because they felt like the wife should be somewhat informed that that there could be a real change in, in the career coming up, right? <laughs> And I said, I don't need to do that. I want to do it. And they were kind of, what? <laughs> Nobody's ever said that before. <laughs> so I signed on. Yeah. And I love that you never doubted yourself because I might think, oh my God, what if I can't do this? Oh, I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I had doubted it from the beginning. But the one thing I didn't doubt at that point was that it must really work. And that was the, that was the door. That was the 
the essential part of it that I had to have confidence that it must really work. And I'm fascinated. I mean, obviously we only have a small period of time, but how does one remote view and what did your training involve? Yes. Well, I'll try and condense it as much as possible. Obviously sure. I'll be leaving some stuff out. And I so think the six stages you mentioned. Um, yeah. So uh, we'll get into that maybe in sure. a little bit. Uh, first of all, what does remote viewing involve? That's, that's important. It involves that essentially what the, the viewer is doing, and I'm going to be very loose with my language here. Mm -hmm. Essentially what you're doing is in a sense, projecting your consciousness to a place distant or shielded from you. So it might be in the next room, which is a distance, but if the door is locked and you can't see inside, it's sealed away from you. And normal perception, there's no way it can tell you what's in that room. Um, it could be on the other side of the planet. There have even been times when we remote view onto other planets, the moon and Mars and such as that. Um, it can be distant in time. It can be in the future or the past. Wow, this conversation is getting so exciting. <laughs> wow. Don't encourage me. No. <laughs> The, the future in the past is I'm fascinated yeah. with as well. <laughs> well, we can get into that too. Um, but essentially what you're doing is extending your conscious, uh, conscious perception somewhere where regular perception can't possibly perceive anything. Okay. It's a form of uh, clairvoyance, if you will, discipline clairvoyance, like how to call it, except it involves all the senses, not just vision. Clairvoyance, of course, clear seeing is interpreted as being visualization. You can visualize in remote viewing as partly where the name came from, but you can also smell, taste, touch, and feel um, as well. Um, so, so it's more like clair perception, <laughs> if you will, clair sentience. I don't know, maybe that's a better term. I don't know, but uh, but that's the basis of it. The training was set up in a way so that um, first of all, there was there was theory. They they explained to you to the to the student how they thought that it worked. And then they explained the actual process, the format that you went through. And then they put you in an environment where you either was psychic or you didn't get anything. So the first rule for remote viewers, they have to be blind to the target. A remote viewer cannot know what the target is. And there's good reason for that. The, 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 one of the reasons it's fairly trivial one is then the skeptics think that because you know what the target is, you're just making stuff up about it, right? The Do you mind just clarifying is, for the audience what the what you mean by the target? Okay, so a target might be like, well, as I said, like something in another room or on the other side of the planet. And let's just use my favorite example, the Eiffel Tower. Let's say that your trainer wants you to remote view the Eiffel Tower, but he or she won't tell you it's the Eiffel Tower you're supposed to go for. They'll give you a number that has been in their own mind and separately from you linked to remote view the Eiffel Tower. Then they give you that number. So for example, the one I always like to use is 8675309. Okay. You don't recognize the song, do you? No. <laughs> You'll have to look it up. 8675309. It's okay. fine. <laughs> so let's say they take that number on a piece of paper, the right 8675309 equals remote view the Eiffel Tower. And speaking figuratively, they tear the sheet in half, they put the part that mentions the Eiffel Tower somewhere where you won't ever see it. And then they just give you the sheet that has 8675309 on it. And that's it. That's it. And so you sit there and you go through the process that you were taught, the format, the, the procedure, and you write down that number and then you start trying to proceed. And, and what, what you get, it works 
kind of like this. First of all, you get a quick snapshot of the target. Uh, it's not exactly an image view. It's more of a kinesthetic thing. You do a squiggle on the paper that captures some aspect of that target. So it might be if there are Eiffel Towers a target, you might get a pointy thing that goes up in the air or up, up the sheet on the piece of paper. And then you, through the process, identify that what you're working with is a structure. Again, you haven't been told anything about this, right? So you say, okay, well, my impression is this is a structure. And then you start into sensories. You start getting, well, it's cold, it's black, it's metallic. I hear chirping sounds, I hear traffic sounds, grassy smells, food smells, echoing, people talking, um, whirring sounds, you know, and all the different things you could maybe get from the Eiffel Tower, colors, sounds, smells, tastes, textures. Um, then as the session progresses, you start sketching. You sketch your inner impressions of this. And it's not necessarily, in fact, very seldom is it a very clear, precise view of the target. Usually if you get a clear, precise view, it's your left brain giving you the wrong answer. Okay. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so you start sketching and maybe you'll just get some crisscrossing marks that you find out later. Eiffel Tower is of course made up of crisscrossing elements and segments. Sometimes you might do well enough to actually sketch something. You'll say, wow, this really reminds me of the Eiffel Tower, right? And so um, that's, that's up through what we call stage three. And then if you get deeper into a session, you can start um, getting uh, so impressions of abstract complex ideas. Like it's foreign, it's commemorative, it's, it's monumental. People come to visit this, there's tourism associated with this. You might even get the impression of French as possible, right? And so you get these more abstract complex things. And then if you continue through to the end, we get to stage six, which involves building an actual three-dimensional model of what your impressions of the target are. If you've seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh gosh, it's been a long time. Long time. Well, if you remember, Richard Dreyfus builds a model of desert, of uh, Devil's Tower on his, out of mashed potatoes on his dining room table, right? Okay. And that's stage six CRV. It's where you actually build a model of the target, a three-dimensional model of it, without, again, ever having been told what the target is, right? So, um, so it goes into greater and greater detail during the stages. Yeah, that's and the idea. So obviously you were talking about how you write it down on a piece of paper. So your eyes aren't necessarily closed and you're not meditating. No. Now it does tend to induce a mild altered state. You start off kind of wide awake and ready to go. And as you get deeper in the session, you skew more right brain. And anybody who's got into art and realized when they start functioning more in their right brain mode, they tend to kind of lose track of time. They tend to get, well, well, maybe the technical terms, you get a little dingy or ditzy, you know, mm -hmm. um, and you go through. And so by the time you're done, you're in a kind of an altered state, nothing deep or profound, but a little bit, you know, sometimes you can have kind of a daydreamy kind of experience as you're going. Um, although I have to say, you mentioned meditation. It turns out that people who are, who are, uh, who are experienced meditators often do better out of the gate with remote viewing than others maybe never had experience with. You can still do fine even if you're not a meditator, but meditators tend to have a little more easier time and a little more success with it early in the process. So, And obviously you're, an, you're the expert at this, but do you get it wrong sometimes? And then they say that it wasn't even at all the Eiffel Tower. Oh, it is so, yes, it happens fairly regularly. 
uh, even the now I'd say probably the best remote viewer to come out of the military program was a guy named Joe McMoneagle. Some of your folk, people may have heard of him, Joe McMoneagle. Yeah, he has done some absolutely unbelievably accurate remote viewings, and then he's done others that are total total misses. <laughs> right? We don't know what makes remote viewing work. We don't have this cause effect chain that explains how it works. We have speculations, but no actual smoking gun. And because of that, we sometimes have success and sometimes we don't, and we don't know why. We know how to increase the odds of being successful, but we don't know how to guarantee success. Although that's not actually all that unusual in human, in most of human psychological phenomena, there's no 100% without either. I mean, you can, as, as one guy said, I can, I can predict, you give me, give me a thousand people, I can predict how the group is going to behave 100%. I cannot predict how each individual is necessarily going to behave 100%, right? Because we all kind of have our own little quirks and foibles and stuff. And so um, generally speaking, that applies to remote viewing as well. Uh, a really good remote viewer, an experienced remote viewer will have success roughly about 70% of the time, which is great when you consider that in, according to mainstream science, they should never have any success whatsoever. Yes, it is quite high. So, from an army, from the army's perspective, you're almost able to peek on what the enemy's doing. Yes, we did that. And can we talked about detail? But sort of, what sort of detail you do you go to? Can you look at documents in your remote viewing session of other what other people are looking at? Can you get to that level of detail? Well, you can get the general idea of what's in a document. Here's the issue, of course. Remote viewing is a, and I'm going to talk in right brain, left brain mm -hmm. metaphor here. And it isn't quite as literal as people think. If there's any professional psychologists listening in, they'll be horrified at how, how facile I'm being with the right brain, left brain language. But it's okay. a very good way of discussing and describing what's going on. Generally speaking, remote viewing tends to be much more right brain active. Language is in the left brain. And if you get the left brain too involved, that's where most of the mental noise comes from that, you're, that you have to deal with. Because the left brain offers all these speculations and guesses and interpretations that, that very often actually don't even have anything to do with the target. It's the left brain trying to take over and run the show, even though it doesn't have access to the information, right? Mm. So reading a document is a very left brain thing. And so when you're in remote viewing mode, it's very hard to do that. What you can do, though, is get a sense of the contents of a document. And we did that. Um, there was one experiment done where, where we were tasked to try and describe the contents of a Soviet language technical document that was locked in a safe on the fifth floor of the Defense Intelligence Analysis Center. My gosh. And we were away. We were in Fort Meade, 30 miles away. We did not know even that we were trying to access a document. We were given a number. And we had to find out that it was a document before we could even try and gist what the content of it was. But we successfully described much of the content of that document. It wasn't that you could you know, do a literal transcription of it. It wasn't that, but you could discuss the ideas in it and we turned out to be correct. That's amazing. And when you say we, so you're given an, a particular number or a target and you work as a team together? Well, <laughs> <clears throat> excuse me, sort of a separate team, right? So we worked separately, but against the same mission, if you will, against the same uh, target. And then you can collaborate afterwards to see if there's similarities. Well, no. 
viewers can't do that. Oh, they can, okay. but they're not supposed to because then you guys start ble- the, the viewers start bleeding over. You know, one viewer might get something wrong, and this viewer will pick it up and start talking about it. So you keep the viewers separate. Their information is fed to an analyst who then compares what they got and sorts out what they have in common, sorts out what seems to, to match with other facts they have. Yeah, so that's the interesting thing about remote viewing. You are essentially in a hermetically sealed process from beginning to final end. And hopefully, ultimately, you'll get feedback. But once you get feedback, that's when the, tar- the session is done, when the work is done. Um, so I hope that made sense. It, it does. And I'm also wondering, talking about session, how long is a remote viewing session or the six stages that we'll talk about in a minute? What's the time frame? Yeah, so um, for a full-blown remote viewing session where you go from stage one up to stage six, which is the model building mm-hmm. stage, um, that can take anywhere from 60 minutes to an hour and a half to the longest I think I ever did was about two hours. Um, and by the time you're done, you're ready to be done, let me tell you. <laughs> and during this process, I, maybe everyone has their differences. What do you do? You're sitting in a chair, you're, you're, you're standing, or what, what so works I'll, for you? I'll describe how it would look to you. Now, now, again, I'm talking about controlled remote viewing, and there's other kinds of remote viewing that are done a little bit differently. But in controlled remote viewing, um, the way we did, we always had a monitor, which was another person who helped you in the session. So, And usually the monitor is also blind. So we have a double blind situation. The monitor is given the number and then the, then that monitor will give you the number to write down. And so you've got a monitor one end of a table, you're at the other end of the table. You have a stack of paper that you're working off of. And then the monitor is observing. And uh, so you sit there and you get, you take the number, which we call it a coordinate, even though it really isn't a coordinate, write it down. And then you go through the process. You're writing and verbalizing at the same time. The monitor's down there to keep you out of trouble. So you may go along and you might drift off the way you're supposed to do it. You drift out of the format and then you start making mistakes. The monitor doesn't know whether it has anything to do with the target or not, but knows you're not following the format. And that can get you into trouble if you drift away from it. More importantly, what a monitor can do is you're going along and you mention something and then you continue going. The monitor says, what, what he or she just said, that might be important. Let's see if we can get more information about that. So for example, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk as if it's an, a military target, right? Sure. So there might be a, a, a building uh, out in central Russia that we can't get inside if we want to know what's going on there. And, and, and the viewer starts going along and describing this building while well, it's shaped kind of like a T and there's all this stuff on the top. Oh, look, there's a really pretty flower over here, right? So the viewer can get distracted by more interesting things, even though they're supposed to be reporting on the non-interesting things, right? So the monitor can say, oh, I'm sure it's a beautiful flower. Now, what about the stuff on the roof? Right. <laughs> Something bring you back onto on task, right? So that's an example of how a monitor can help you out. So. And are you given, so once you've um, detailed all this information, were you given feedback of how accurate uh, your report was? That depends. Um, on a training target, yes, you always get feedback when it's just practice or training. But when it's an operational target, Sometimes they never get feedback because you're working on. So, for example, if you're trying to locate a hostage in the Middle East, um, you may provide accurate information, but they can't check it because it's out in the middle of the Bekaa Valley and they're surrounded by Hezbollah and you can't get your folks in to check if that's where the hostage is. Right. So you don't get feedback on that. Right. 
Uh, it may be an R&D thing, a, a research and development thing where they never are able to actually verify the information because they can't get inside the facility. So you won't get feedback in those cases. There are other cases too, though, where it might be an ongoing project, like maybe last several months or even a year or two, that they keep having the viewers go back and revisit those targets. It may be a very complicated kind of a problem. And you won't get feedback then until you're absolutely finally done with that project and you won't be going back and addressing it. So they, they had us do a lot of training and practice targets because one of the things that a viewer craves is feedback. They want to know how well they did. They want of to know course. what the target was, right? You want validation, right? That's exactly right. And if you don't get it over a long period of time, you start losing your edge. You, you kind of stop. You don't have enthusiasm. You also aren't as accurate because it's that feedback that helps you fine tune how well you're perceiving things, right? And so they would often give us targets that had feedback, may not be operational, may not be a problem they wanted to answer, but they wanted to keep our edge. And the only way to do that is to allow you to have feedback on a target that they have feedback for. And so, yeah, there, there were targets that we worked at Fort Meade that, that none of us ever got feedback on. We have no idea what we did or how well we did it. So. Were you thinking, I can't believe I get paid to do this. It's, it's just such a wonderful... Well... It started off that way. Oh, okay. Wow. It started off glamorous, right? Like all things. Yeah. So it, oh, I can't believe this. I'm, I'm, my, I'm sending my consciousness to the other side of the planet. Yeah, this is really exciting. You know, I wish I could tell people what I do, you know. Yeah. And then after you've been doing it for several years, they come in and say, okay, well, you need you to do another session. Oh, man, do I have to go back over the operation building and project my conscience to another side of the world to talk about another dumb Soviet R&D site? <laughs> you know? And a friend of mine, he was a commander at the time, and, and we worked together and trained together. And his name was Bill Ray. He liked to wear these kind of smoking jackets. You know, we were all in civilian clothes, and he always smoked a pipe when you could do, do that in the government facility, right? He comes walking down the... the uh, the main floor of the office with his kind of looks thoughtfully with his pipe in his hand, little patches on his jacket, you know, and he comes up and he says, you know, Paul, what surprises me about what we do here? I said, no, Bill, what surprised you? He says, what surprises me about this is it doesn't surprise me anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it often got to be, now that was a bit of an exaggeration because we could still do things that even blew our minds. We got the feedback and said, holy cow, is that what that was, you know? Right. And we'd, we'd be astonished even then. But a lot of it, after a while, you kind of kind of got to be like any other job. You know, it could be a routine kind of a thing. Sure. And it is kind of a bizarre position to be in. It, I think it's wonderful. Um, you were talking about targets before, and it's not necessarily only structures, but targets can also be missing persons or um, people that a lot of remote viewers look for. Or look for is probably not the right terminology. So the kinds of things we did uh, involved uh, locations, activities, um, people, not just necessarily missing people, but uh, other people they wanted to find out about, mm -hmm. um, events, um, some degree processes, you know, particularly like if it was a nuclear weapons laboratory or a biological chemical warfare factory or something. Um, they might want to be, look, be looking for things you can tell them about what's going on, the processes that are going on. Um, so a variety, just about anything that could possibly be of interest to the intelligence community, we got tasked on at one time or another uh, of that category. One of our big things was actually counter-narcotics operations. We were 
tasked to try and locate drug shipments, uh, secret compartments in ships, uh, meetings between drug traffickers, um, you know, th th that, those kind of things. And, and we weren't always successful. There were times we were absolutely successful in ways that no other intelligence uh, mode was able to be successful in. So we were definitely help fill gaps in the process. This is just such a fascinating subject. So even though you were given the numbers at times, the, the, the person that was giving you the numbers didn't know the geographical location. That's right. Yeah. They just had the name of the person, really. And you had well, to... Well, the person who gave us the number probably didn't even have that. So right. somebody else, we call them the tasker, the person who gives you the task. Yeah. The tasker came up with the number that corresponded to what the intent of the tasking was, of what, what they wanted you to do. Then they would give the number to somebody else and not tell them what the linkage was. And then that person would give you the number. So there's an air gap there between the tasker and you to preserve your uh, unwittingness, your blindness to the target. Um, if you, yeah, if you knew what the target was, oftentimes you, everything you knew about it, everything you guessed about it, all that stuff would get in there and it would start to blanket, kind of smother the actual data that you wanted to get because that signal is very subtle. And uh, if you knew that you were trying to find some hostage in the Middle East and you had read about that hostage in the morning paper, then the speculations of the paper would become the most prominent thing in your head. Yeah. And, it, and the, the hostage might be someplace else altogether different, but you wouldn't be able to pick up on that because all this noise from what you believed about it based on what you read that morning. So being blind is essential to accurate remote viewing. So interesting. And do you mind just discussing the past and future remote viewing? Because that's just another mind-blowingly interesting topic. Yeah. <clears throat> the interesting thing is um, you can remote view the future, but not nearly as successful as you can the present or the past. Um, and I'll explain why in a minute. But we often had to remote view past things, like past meetings of the of a drug cartel or a past uh, movement of, a, of, of, uh, of Iranian silkworm missiles, or it's things that had happened in the past. And though that, that was, we were accessible at that as we're at present kinds of targets. Future was really hard to do. Um, and here's the irony. So when you tell people you're psychic, they want you to do one of two things. They want you either to predict the future or they want you to find something or someone's missing. Those are the two hardest things for any psychic to do, not just a remote viewer. Okay. Now we've come to associate those things with being psychic because sometimes that's the only tool you have to try and find someone that's missing or try and, and predict the future. And you all, you hear the stories where that's successful. You don't hear all the stories where there's their failures, right? And roughly I would say uh, for the kind of open future prediction, like where will, where and when will the next terrorist attack be? Let's say somebody wants you to predict that. Sure. Um, you are lucky if one out of once or twice out of a hundred times you get that right. Okay. And, and I, my argument is it's, it's because the future doesn't exist. There are people who think we live in a block universe where the past, present and future all exist like a two before laying on the ground. Right. Yes. And all we do is move our perception along it. But the evidence seems to indicate that's not true, at least from a remote viewing perspective. Because we can be, as I said, very roughly 70% successful present and past. But when you're trying to remote view an open future event, your success rate drops. No matter how good you are, your success rate drops dramatically to, I don't know, subjectively 5% maybe. 
Um, and no viewer gets it more right more often than that. You'll hear people claim that, but they are, if you actually look at their data, they're, they're fudging it, right? right. <laughs> there is one mode where that's not true. It's this thing called associative remote viewing. Um, associative remote viewing is where you can predict the, out, predict the outcome of a future binary event. So like, will a stock price go up or down? Will the silver futures market close higher or lower? Oh, you can predict that. Oh, yes. Really? Will, very successfully. Will, um, will, uh, will you, what do you call it? Soccer or football in Australia? Uh, they're, they're actually different. They're, they're, they're three different things. But <laughs> yeah, we'll say rugby. You're going to get a lot of comments about the future stock market. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we'll say rugby because there's no quibble about what that word means, right? Mm -hmm. So rugby. So rugby team A or rugby team B, is it going to, which one's going to win? So you know which one to bet on, right? And using associate remote viewing, you, you can successfully predict those outcomes to the same level of success as remote viewing present and past. So roughly 70% of the time, someone who's doing it right, will roughly 70, sometimes up to 80% of the time, correctly predict which rugby team is going to win the day before the, the game is even played without knowing anything about rugby at all. I could do it and I, and I don't know anything about rugby except I know it's a bunch of guys running around with the ball, right? I barely know what American football is. Right. <laughs> so, so and, and that can be very successful. And the reason it is, is not, is because you're not trying to predict some event out there in the open future. You're tr trying to predict a discrete event. And um, the way it's done, it essentially, I like to say, it kind of collapses the timeline mm -hmm. in that small corner of the universe down to where it's absolutely determined that you, it's going to happen the way that you predict. And, um, so if you want if you want me to go into that in more detail i can but it's, it's involves a little bit of a process but i'm just well it's, it sounds very interesting so whether it's the stock market or the rugby team what <laughs> we talked about the, the left and the right brain money. what are you seeing what are you feeling or sensing in regards to well okay so I, i'll explain how arv works okay. so social remote viewing they discovered that SRI, they tried to play with this idea of predictive remote viewing and they discovered that if they say, okay, uh, we want you to tell us whether team A or team B is going to win, they ended up with no better than chance. The viewer would essentially end up being a guess because you turn your left brain on and it starts guessing, mm -hmm. right? So they said, well, why don't we leverage what remote viewing is good at, which is describing targets, not, not analyzing them, but describing them. So mm -hmm. they said, well, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll take two objects and we'll associate one with one outcome and the other one with another outcome. So let's say a pencil stands for team A winning and a apple stands for team B winning. And then you don't ask the remote viewer to describe what team is going to win. You ask them to describe what object they're going to be handed the day after the game is played. Okay. Right. And so what happens is let's say team B, uh, well, let's say on day day one, the game is going to be played on day two. On day one, the viewer sketches what they're going to be said. Well, it's round and it's red and it smells sweet and it's kind of soft. Well, that doesn't describe a pencil. That describes an apple. Okay. So then the, the analyst says, okay, so they described the apple. That must mean I'm going to hand them the apple on day three. Since we've linked the outcome of team B winning to the apple, that must mean team B is going to win. 
And so they bet on team B, team B wins, everybody gets a lot of money. And on day three, they hand the viewer the apple as their feedback. Now, people get confused. And I, I kind of see that you're kind of confused here too. It isn't that the apple makes it happen. It's more like a signaling mechanism. It's like uh, you've got a scout up on a ridge and there's a chance that the bad guys are going to come or the good guys are going to come. You're all down here below the ridge and you say, okay, scout, if the bad guys are coming, hold up a pencil. If the good guys are coming, hold up an apple, right? So this is that same principle, except it's just displaced in time. So instead of the ridge being the thing that's between you and being able to see what's happening, it's a couple of days between you and what's going to be happening. And you, the remote viewer, get to go out and find out whether it's an apple or a pencil, and then you'll know which force is coming. Uh, you know, you explained that ver the predictive viewing very well, but um, you talked before about the stock market and you've been successful yeah. with that. Yeah. Obviously, if you're doing it for yourself, you you know what you're predictive viewing. Yeah. How do you do that without just being given a number, for example, because yes, you're emotionally or your left brain involved in the whole process? That's, that's the challenge. This is that's best the challenge. done with at least two people. Best done with at least two people. There was one guy. Well, there's probably been another stupid. There's a guy named guy a Canadian named Greg Kolajesic. His name was like this long, starts with a K. So we all call him Greg K. Greg K. That's easy. Yeah. So he he actually was one of the early uh, dot-com millionaires. He had created a company that Adobe eventually bought. So he had time to play around and funds to play around with. He decided he was going to try ARV against various commodities markets like, uh, oh, I think he might have done oil and silver and that kind of thing, right? And But he didn't want anybody else involved in the project. And so he set up a computer to match pictures. And, and the computer was designed to pick which one would be matched to which outcome. And so what he had to do was describe what picture the computer was going to show him after the event. Uh, and then he'd have to you know, judge between the two possibilities, which one is the one he described. And, and uh, there, there's some problems with doing it this way. You have to do a lot of them to be successful. But he actually, over a 13-year period of doing this quite religiously, he actually netted, this was his profit, profited $150,000 in the process. And he must have had a lot of fun along the way doing it. Well, there are probably some headaches too. <laughs> probably, but if you, so if you, you mentioned, I think you mentioned silver or gold, yeah. um, would you have a, a person to help you if you're doing the predictive viewing with that? Well, you could set it up the way he did, mm -hmm. which is a lot of work. Uh, but if you can get somebody else to help you, it's a lot easier. You don't have to go through all the comp computer crap. Uh, you just have them pick targets. Uh, and in fact, there are a couple of projects against the silver futures that were very successful back in the early to mid 80s. One put off himself did. He was trying to fund a nonprofit school, um, Montessori school, I want to say. Um, and they were short on funds. And this rich investor said, I'll tell you what, if you use your psychics to help me predict the silver futures market, I'll give you 10% of the income. Oh, that's great. It was great because they weren't risking any funds, but they would get something from it if they were successful. They made $25,000. So that means the investor made $250,000 based on their, and this is all documented. This is not something that is just a war story you can hear. The, all this stuff is documented. Uh, and his partner, Russell Targ, uh, did a Silver for Futures project that actually was written up in the Wall Street Journal in which, I, I don't remember what order of magnitude, but they made 
somewhere along those lines in their Silver Features project. Now, later they tried it again and they totally crashed, lost all their money because they messed with a protocol. They got greedy and that's the key here. You have to stick with the protocol. You can't get greedy. If you're having success, don't change or don't keep going beyond what you agreed to keep going because you run the danger of messing it up. And that happened actually with my son. So uh, my son Christopher was at the University of Colorado. He took this uh, scientific parapsychology course from a professor, professor named uh, Garrett Modell. And um, they, Garrett discovered that Christopher was my son. And he, he and I hadn't met before. And he said, well, your son's that remote viewer or your dad's that remote viewer. Think he'd come and talk to us. <laughs> and so I went out to Boulder, Colorado and I gave him an introductory talk on remote viewing. And then I taught him how to do ARV. And they decided they were going to use this as their class project. So they did an ARV on the Fortune 500. Okay. They did seven trades. And what happened was they had the, a guy auditing the class that wanted to learn about statistics was a dot-com millionaire himself. He kicked in 10K. He said, I'm going to throw 10K in this. If you guys win, I get to keep the profits. If you lose, I'm not going to charge you for the money that we lost. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's real money running on it. They did seven correct trades in a row which is already statistically significant. And they netted, let me get this figure right. 10K, they netted 25, no, they made $25,000. I hadn't realized how close that was to put offs, but it, it doesn't matter, they're independent, right? Mm -hmm. So they made $25,000. If they had followed the protocol, the guy with the money had decided, oh, the market's going up on the last trade. The market's still going up and they're supposed to cut it off at a certain point and, um, and, and take the money and run, right? Oh no, the market's going up. The market's going up. It's going crazy. I'm going to leave the money in. Within an hour, it had totally crashed. And they would have, they would have made $36,000 if he'd pulled out when he was supposed to. Right. <laughs> so so get, screwed him up. Yeah. So again, the protocol is important and they, would have used the same methodology, not exactly, but the apple or the pencil. What yes. what was the future yeah. outcome? They were actually photos. You get two photos that are significantly different, and then one or the other will be shown to the viewer as feedback. Um, it's easier than trying to find lots of objects that are different from each other. I can imagine, and it's interesting predicting the future um, in a shorter time period, mm -hmm. opposed to a, a much greater time period. Well, it's interesting you say that. It's not exactly what you meant, but it actually brings up an interesting point. The evidence suggests that the closer into the event you're trying to predict it, the more likely you are to get it right. So you're going to do better predicting an event that's going to happen tomorrow than you are an event that's going to happen in a year and a half. And that also matches this theory that I have about the future not existing yet, because mm -hmm. the farther out you get, the more likely there are to be divergences from what the, the conditions are right now in the present that dictate what the future is going to be. I could go off on a tangent and talk about this, but I won't on the, in the interests of a time. Um, I'd love to discuss the six stages of remote viewing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I, I kind of um, alluded to them before, but I'll go through them each a, mm -hmm. a little bit more specifically. So, um, and again, we'll use the Eiffel Tower as our target because that's yeah. the most convenient way to talk about it. So stage one happens very quickly. You write down the coordinate or the number, right? And then you attempt, you get the little squiggle that we call an ideogram. 
and then you interpret what that ideogram means. And the goal of stage one is to only identify whether the target is a structure, whether it's land, whether it's water, whether it's a person, whether it's an event. Okay, so you're just doing a real rough cut on the target, but that's just the starting point. It's a way of getting you into the process. Mm -hmm. So when you come to stage two, that's the next stage. That's when you get the sensory perceptions. You go for colors, you go for smells, taste, touch. Uh, oh, hang on a second. I thought I'd made my phone quiet. Oh, interesting ringtone. Oh, I always nice. say we like a bit of music here on Passion Harvest. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> just I to spice things up a little bit, Paul. Yes. <laughs> Maybe I should let more of it play. I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, sorry, stage two. Yeah, stage two. So you're you're trying to get um, so sensory impressions, uh, taste, touch, visuals, and here we're talking mostly about colors and qualities of light. When I say quality of light, I mean is it shadowy? Is it sparkly? Is it transparent? The, the way light interacts with with uh, surfaces, um, surfaces and substances. So colors, and in fact, that's all there is to vision when you get right down to it is colors and qualities of light, including light intensities. It's our brains that put together the, the shapes and things that we see out there in the, in the world because all we're seeing is light qualities, right? So um, qualities of light, uh, colors, um, I don't know if I said taste, touch, tactile, temperature, that kind of thing, all these things. And this is a bits and pieces thing. You're not getting a full concept of this target. You're getting the fragments of perception that come in. Um, and that's what you start to build your understanding of it from at that point, you get a lot of these things, then you start getting a kind of a dimensional experience with it. You get the impression, well, it's tall, it's wide, it's airy, there's crisscrossing elements in the case of the Eiffel Tower. Uh, you move into stage three, and then you actually start making sketches. And sometimes they start off not really like the target at all. You just start to get bits of pizza, bits and pieces. And oftentimes though, they'll morph into something more, uh, more representational of the target. You start off with these kind of uh, vague sort of resemblances, and they'll get more and more precise as you go. At a certain point, you, you've got all the sketching that you're going to, that you reach a point you're sketching that now you're starting to get these more complex concepts. You got to do something with them. So that's when we move into stage four. And in stage four, you kind of have this matrix where you can put things down, organize your data as it's coming in so that you can write it down, forget that, get more information. Um, it's, it's, this is just strictly human psychology, psychology of memory. The idea is that your short-term memory works in this way. You get some information in, and if you don't record it in some way, then either you forget that or other information coming in will erase it and, and replace it. And so the idea is you write stuff down and you verbalize it because that's a way of getting it out of your short-term memory and allowing more space for new information in without losing what you already got. And you're, do, you're doing that in stage four. So this is very much a, both a verbal, a cognitive, verbal, and, and uh, record keeping kind of a process, right? Um, I want to talk more about that in a second, but we'll go through the stages. There's this thing called stage five. Stage five actually isn't remote viewing. What it is, is extracting data from your subconscious that got dumped in there while you were on the signal before in stage four. So what you do is in stage five, you kind of take a sidebar, you, you go and then you start trying to extract additional data that is already there, but that you don't want to lose. And you put that down. Then uh, you may or may not use stage five. Um, 
it depends on what you need for that session. Yeah. So then when you go to stage six, that's when you actually, you still have that matrix you're recording things in because as you're building your model, this is where you build a three-dimensional model. As you're building your model, you're still getting additional perceptions, okay? You're still getting additional perceptions right in the mount. And that's because there's also a kinesthetic element to remote viewing. So you have your five senses and then you have kinesthetics, which is also in a way a sensory kind of a mode. Uh, for folks who don't know what kinesthetics are, a kinesthetic uh, experience is where your it's kind of like your muscles get involved in the process as well. Uh, a kinesthetic uh, dance is a very kinesthetic thing. Uh, sketching is actually very kinesthetic. Model building is kinesthetic because your muscle movements are are integrating with your thoughts and your processes. Um, and so oftentimes your underlying uh, muscle memory, your muscle reflexes, that kind of thing, actually know more about the target than you consciously know. And if you allow your hands to sketch, if you allow your hands to model, you actually can get more information that way um, that you haven't been able to get in other modes. And so you'll have to be very attuned to your body in this process. So it's not just the sensory, it's not just the mind, it's also the body. It's this kind of like unitary kind of, kind of uh, harmonized kind of, a, of an encounter experience with, with the psychic realm. That's really interesting. I'm not gonna go off on a tangent, but that's how kinesiologists or even dowsing works. And I won't yes. talk about that because we could talk for hours. But... Well, maybe another time. <laughs> another time. <laughs> you're exactly right. Yes, it's, yeah. it's uh, the remote viewing and dowsing are, uh, I won't go into detail, they're kind of like the inverses of each other. They're very, they're very attuned to one another, but they each do things the other one doesn't do, right? So they're kind of uh, complementary, I guess is probably a good way of saying it. But we can talk about that another time. Sure. Um, well, thank, thank you for sharing those, those six stages. I also wanted to say to the audience or listeners that you do offer um, online courses. Are they online courses or teaching remote viewing? No, um, my gold standard is actually in-person courses. Okay. Uh, and the basic course, all each of the courses is uh, five and a half days long, roughly 40 hours of coursework, homework. It's very, very... Uh, intense, but it's also very personalized. I have, uh, I only allow two students per instructor. So if I have more than two students, I bring in another instructor and I cap it at three instructors and six students. So um, it's a very uh, personalized so that we can really address uh, things that you're helping you do things well that you do well and addressing maybe areas where you need improvement in, in the process. Um, so yes. Now, particularly problematic during this time because I'm not doing live classes like yes. right now. I do have to say, by the way, I've had Australian students. They have come over from Australia. Uh, one is a, a social worker out in Perth, actually. Hmm. And she's just, I absolutely love her. And I, I, I wish she could come back or I wish I could go over there. But, uh, but yeah, I've had Australian students, uh, three or four now, I would say. Um, but you know, not everybody can come clear over here. I understand that. So I do have a DVD-based home study course. It's not online. The producers actually own the, the product, mm -hmm. uh, don't want to stream it. They're worried about piracy and stuff. So um, so it is a DVD-based thing. They do ship all over the world. But it's called Remote Perception, Basic Operational Training. It is a remote viewing course, but a little more emphasis on the perceptual part of it. 
Sure. And, uh, and so people can get that. And then, of course, I've got my books. So. Yes. And I'll put the links in the show notes for anyone Thank that wants to have a look or get in contact with you. Is there anything else you'd like to speak to the Passion Harvest audience on a final note about? Um, you know, of course, we didn't even get into the metaphysics of all this. So oh my gosh. Could be another time. And, and that would be a whole nother, another lecture or not lecture, uh, interview. Part two. Uh, part two, yes. But no, I th think we've uh, we've covered the, the basic ground pretty thoroughly here. So Yes, we've covered a lot of amazing topics. Well, Paul H. Smith, thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. It's been so insightful and I could talk to you for hours. And I could talk for hours. That's the unfortunate <laughs> thing. <laughs> well, you're, you're the best guest ever. I don't have to really do anything except ask questions. Ah, well, you needed a break. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been You're a delight. Thank you okay. for giving the opportunity. <laughs> Bye, Paul. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening. And please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate. <laughs>